the, the series that I'm going to start today um, is based on this Andrew Walmack book. Um, Ken and I became partners with Andrew Walmack after I went to the conference last summer. And we never partnered with another uh, long-distance ministry until this one. But when I went to the Healing is Here conference in Colorado last summer, I came back knowing that this is really good ground. And I really and I have said so much on Andrew Walmack's teachings. It has influenced our ministry greatly. And um, that's why we partnered with him. But this book, because we are a partner, it came free in the mail. He calls me at the best times. Not he, but his ministry <laughs> calls me at the most amazing times. And I am able to get prayer for whatever it is right at that time that something is, you know, on my heart. This book came in the mail recently. It's called The True Nature of God. And it's actually an older published book. I think it was in um, the early 2000s. Let me, let me look. Uh, 2010. It was uh, originally copyrighted in 1997 and then republished or re-edited or whatever in 2010. But it is really good. And I read it over the holidays, and as I was reading it, it was just like one of those things that was just stirring and stirring and stirring and stirring. And I thought, you know what, I really want to help us and me too to really get this into who we know God is get it into our heart so this series is going to be approximately six weeks long and I'm going to are you ready honey okay we're good to go I wanted it videoed because it these kinds of teachings can really impact lives I'm going to give you an example um Danielle raise your hand Danielle um has been coming to our meetings for about six eight months now and when she first started coming, it was during the season when we were doing a series on identity. And that series so changed her life and her husband's life that they're like new people. Um, they went back home to visit. They live in her home, her home state is Minnesota. And she went back to Minnesota to visit during the summer. And she grew up in a very strong Christian home. Your dad was a pastor, wasn't he? Missionary, okay, so, but a very strong home. And the, the church home that she grew up in knows her well. Now, she's been a strong woman of God her whole life. But when she, when she went back, they said, there's something new about you. What is new? We want to know because it was good. It was this new life that she had received, this new truth that she had received that had transformed her, her life, literally. And she shared with them the teaching that she's been hearing here. And that particular teaching was the identity teaching. Who we are in Christ and whose we are. They wanted those teachings. So we, you, if you've been with us well, you know, we put together a, a handout that had, you know, our, our teachings and all of the audio and video um, links and stuff. And she wanted to send that. They asked for it. So these kinds of teachings that maybe you haven't had. We haven't all had this kind of teaching. I think it can really bless all of us and take us to a new level. So, the true nature of God. The introduction, if you have your handout with you. The introduction, I'm going to go through three or four points that kind of um, give an overview of this whole idea, big idea. And then we're going to break it up into, into parts. Your life and the fullness and the completeness of your life will be a reflection 
of how you perceive God. And that perception you have of God determines or will determine how you receive the extravagant grace that Jesus paid the price for. That in itself is worth paying attention. So think of this as a real simple example, but think of this. There are people out there who do not believe in God. Does that mean that God doesn't exist? Uh Uh-uh. Just because they don't believe it doesn't mean our God isn't God. He is. He's on the throne. But their perception, their understanding, their belief, is uh, it's their choice what they believe. Same thing is true about our perception of the real nature of God. We may be wrongly perceiving the nature of God based on a lot of things based on what we've been taught, based on things that we've experienced, based on whatever. There's a lot of things that can influence how you perceive God. My heart is that this series of teachings will unveil something new in us, in all of us, and me too, to to unfold and unveil the true nature. And I know that There's so much we probably won't begin to know until we are with him face to face. But I want to know more and more and more and more. My my goal in life is to know God more and to make him known more. So that's what we want to do. Understanding that God is a good God and that he loves us. Those are two big qualities of the true nature of God. He is a good God. And he loves us. And knowing and understanding and perceiving those things takes away the the effectiveness of the enemy's weapons over our faith. You know, Satan's the God of this world, the little G God of the world. But knowing the goodness of God and knowing his love for us takes away his effectiveness over our faith. Remember, God's part is the finished work that Jesus accomplished. Our part is believing the finished work which is faith. Knowing God is, is the, uh, let me say this the way that it's written on your paper, faith is the direct result of knowing God better, knowing the true nature of God better. Faith results from knowing God better. I believe that we're all going to come to a different level in our knowing of God. And then the next point, our knowledge of God must come through the revelation of Jesus Christ. In our Tuesday night meetings, Pastor Tim's meetings are called All About Jesus. They're human meetings. But the title is All About Jesus. This meeting is Jesus Christ Heals Today. Our knowledge is based on revelation of Jesus, knowing him better. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. This is going to be the foundational scripture that we're going to use for the next six weeks. We'll come back to it every week. So 2 Peter chapter 1, and this is what it says. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, 
as his divine, divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. So at the beginning of this scripture, it says, All grace and peace be multiplied to you by the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. So grace and peace, this is the gift that Jesus paid the price for on the cross. It says right here in the scripture that that grace, that finished work, that completed work, and the peace of God, it says it will be multiplied to us. Multiplication, guys, grows something exponentially. It's not addition. Repeated addition is 2 plus 2 plus 2 plus 2 plus 2 plus 2 plus 2. And you go, you, you increase in small increments. Multiplication is a whole different story. 2 times 2 is 4. 4 times 4 is 16. 16 times 16 is I don't even know what. Multiple hundreds, right? It grows quickly. This scripture says that God's grace and his peace is multiplied to us through what? The knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. So we're going to teach about the true nature of God. And I believe that his grace, the extravagant grace, is going to be multiplied to us. And then in the next verse it says, As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life. My initial statement was that we, our life, the fullness, the completeness of our life, will depend on how we perceive God. And that perception will affect what we receive of the all things. Now, I don't believe that, you know, we have to do something to get God to move. Mm -mm. That's not what we're going to be teaching. But as we come to know him, those all things will, will be there on a, on, a, on, a, on a platter for us to just say, okay, thank you, Father. Okay. So part one today. We're going to talk about the history of God's grace. We're going to look at God's grace in the Old Testament. Because that's where God gets the bad rap when people read the Old Testament. So we're going to look at God's grace in the Old Testament between Adam and Moses. Moses is when the law came. So we're going to look at that first period of time, and we're going to look at grace between Adam and Moses. Then we're going to look at the giving of the law and why God gave the law. And then we're going to look at when Jesus came and the better covenant was established. So we're going to look at those three pieces and look at the history of grace. So we're going to start with Romans 5, verse 13, and then we're going to go backwards a little bit. So Romans 5, I'm going to read it in two different translations. So Father God, I just thank you for this word. I thank you for this truth that you are just oh, just churning in my, my inner person right now. And I pray, Father, that you give me the Holy Spirit's ability to share it, to deliver it in a way that is clear and easy to understand and that it grows deep in our hearts. In Jesus' name. 
Amen. So Romans 5.13 says, For until the law was in the world, for until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. That word imputed means held against us. So if I put that in the, in the, in the place of imputed, it says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not held against the people because there was no law. This is before the law. You're saying, oh boy, that sounds weird. Let me continue. In the New Living, same scripture. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there's no law. Okay. Now this is something that was new to me, guys. I was taught that when Adam and Eve sinned and man fell, that man was separated from God. That that was the result of the fall of man. Man was not. I'm going to say that again. That's not what the Bible says. Man was not separated from God. Then. There was a time when the law was given that he was. But at that time, before the law, sin was not held against man. So from Adam until Moses, God dealt with people out of love and mercy and forgiveness instead of wrath and judgment. I'm going to give you some examples. Okay, here's the first example. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, we know that they, because of them making the choice to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we know that sin entered the world. We know that the enemy came and took dominion from man. We know all of that, and that's all true. But God did not expel them from his presence. The presence of God went with an Adam and Eve. Now, yes, they, were, they left the Garden of Eden. They had to get away from that tree of knowledge of good and evil, or they would have lived forever with sin, and that would not have been good. So they, were, they did leave the Garden of Eden. They were told to leave there, but God went with them. He was still fellowshipping with mankind even after the fall. And since I've been reading this, I've been looking in my Bible and seeing that that's true. This scripture, this is Genesis 3.9. It's right after, and this isn't going to be on the screen. I'm just going to just quickly um, uh, refer to it. This is right after they had sinned, and they knew they were naked, and they were hiding from God. And this is what God said in Genesis 3.9. Then the Lord called to Adam. And he said, where are you? God went to Adam. He wasn't separated. He went to find his son and his daughter. He didn't separate himself from them. Here's another example. Um, Noah. Well, we all know what happened with Noah. You know, everybody in the world died. But listen to this. This is Genesis 6, verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. 
Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a man of, of a good man. God loved him. God spoke to Noah in great detail. Told him exactly how to build that ark. Exactly what to do. He was fellowshipping with Noah. And then after the, the flood, this is chapter 9, Genesis 9, verse 1. And God pronounced a blessing upon Noah and his sons. That sounds like fellowship to me. God pronounced a blessing over his son and his over Noah and his sons. And he said, Be fruitful and multiply. And then there was this great big long blessing, not just over Noah and his sons, but over the earth. Over the, the, the animals and the, the the plants and everything. And he gave he once again said, Noah, you know, this is yours. Take dominion over it. He gave it to him. And then he made a covenant with Noah and his family. He made a covenant, and there was the, the rainbow as a sign of his covenant. And he said, never again, never again will judgment like this destroy man. Well, the reason that judgment came was because of the terrible sin that was on the earth. We're going to go into that in a minute. But I want to, before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah. More, another, a, a beautiful account of a man and a woman before the law, who were in this place of fellowship with God. That man, Abraham and his wife, to have done what they did, you know, to pick up their life and to move with all of their belongings, just because God said so. They had to have a relationship with God. They had to have deep relationship with Father God. Um, I am going to go right now to Romans chapter 4, and this one is going to be on the screen. This is, this is starting with verse 20, I believe. Yeah, verse 20. This is about Abraham. Abraham did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. We've read that scripture a lot in here when we're talking about our faith and about standing, believing God instead of what we see in the world. We've talked about the power of glorifying God in the middle of the journey. But listen to the rest of it. And Adam, or Abraham and Sarah were fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, and therefore, that is why his faith was credited to him as righteousness. This is before Jesus. And that word credited or accounted, therefore it was accounted to him for righteous. That is the same word as imputed. It's the same word. So I, I said at the beginning of this teaching that sin was not imputed to man before the law. It wasn't held against him. But righteousness was imputed to him because of his faith. This is before Jesus. This is before the, the better covenant, the new covenant. There was fellowship. Abraham wasn't perfect. We know the stories about Abraham. He tried to do it because it wasn't happening on his own. When he, God said, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And he waited, and he waited, and he waited, and he waited, and his wife didn't get pregnant. He thought, how am I going to be the father of many nations? I have no son. I'm impotent. And so they tried to fix it. That wasn't God's best. 
He sinned. He sinned and he sinned and he sinned. But he kept coming back to his daddy. He kept coming back and fellowshipping with God. And he believed God. And righteousness was imputed to him. It was accounted. It was put in his account. This man who didn't even have the benefit of the blood of Jesus, it was put in his account in the bank. Okay, next point. Even though during this season between Adam and Moses, even though during that season God was not imputing sin to mankind, he wasn't holding it against them, sin did have devastating effects on mankind from the beginning. Now, in general, there are two effects that sin can have. The first one is a vertical effect. And a vertical effect of sin is a transgression against God. So it's between us and him. Sin can affect our relationship, our fellowship with God. We're not teaching about sin tonight, but this is just a little tidbit just to help you understand this. However, in before the law, sin was not imputed to man. So that really wasn't the issue before the law. The issue is the second one, which is the horizontal effect of sin. And the horizontal effect is that sin allows the enemy access into our lives in some form. So even though before the law, pre-law, God wasn't bringing full judgment upon sin, the effects of sin were causing the human race to be destroyed. That's what happened before Noah. The downward spiral of sin was so bad that humankind was literally destroying itself with sin. And it can, and it can happen in all areas, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. Um, and then I, I, these are five things, five possible effects. And I'm sure there's more, but these are kind of general areas. areas. The first effect of this horizontal effect of sin is diminished lifespan. And when we read the Old Testament and we start at the beginning of the Bible, you know, people live 900, 960 years, a long, long, long time. And then as you go through the book of Genesis and into the book of Exodus, people aren't living that long anymore. Pretty soon it's down to 120 years, which is still a long time. But it, it keeps going down, 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 down because of the effect of sin in our lives. That's one of the effects. Another effect is the perception of nakedness. Let me explain. When Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing that they said was, we're naked, we have to hide, we're naked. When God created them, and they were in that Garden of Eden, they were probably still naked. But the difference was, they were completely God-conscious. And not self-conscious or sin-conscious. After the fall, they were self-conscious. They knew that they had sinned against God, that they had not followed his, his loving commands. And that's when they saw themselves naked. So what this accounts to in our, in our position, or even in the pre-law time, is that people became more and more self-conscious instead of God-conscious. 
The third effect of horizontal sin is fear of rejection. When we know good and evil, we know sin, we know when we miss it, it will make you want to run from God instead of to him. The next one is forever in debt. Again, that knowledge of sin and guilt and condemnation and unworthiness makes you want to avoid the one you're indebted to. This is all before Jesus, guys. We're going to go into the what, where we are now in a minute. And the last one is deception. Sin blinds us and deceives us. So, that was pre-Mosaic Law. Mosaic Law includes... I'm going to look at my notes really quick. Mosaic Law includes the Ten Commandments. So when Moses went up to Mount Sinai and came down to the Ten Commandments. It includes judgments. It includes punishments. It includes ordinances and ceremonial observances. All that stuff. There's a lot in the Old Testament. When you get to um, Exodus and, or I'm sorry, Genesis, where the law is given, and then it continues, and then we get in Leviticus. Oh, my goodness, it's hard to read because it's got so many rules and so many regulations and so many things to do in the ceremonial sacrificial system. And there's just one rule after another, after another, after another. That's all part of the Mosaic Law. So, why? Why? What was God's purpose for the law? Until Jesus came to the earth, God had to put some temporary restraint upon sin to keep it from doing all that stuff that we just talked about. To keep it from multiplying and dominating and destroying the human race. God had to do something. He added the Old Testament law because of the abundance of transgressions. But it was only a temporary measure until Jesus could come. So the purpose of the law was to help people to put a restraint on the sin issue. Now, before people were saved, even before we were saved, we couldn't understand spiritual things. Back before Jesus came, nobody was saved. And nobody could understand spiritual things. So God had to give them something they could understand which was law, rules, regulations. Do this, don't do this. That was easy for them to understand. Couldn't accomplish it, but there was some semblance of understanding. You know, I was an elementary teacher for many years, and I was very consistent. These are my expectations. And as long as I was very consistent and followed through on those expectations, you know, we could have a pretty good order in a classroom. But that law was was part of that, that the kids understood. I want to look at 1 Corinthians 2.14, because this is a scripture that shows that the unsaved person couldn't understand spiritual things, and this is what it says. But the natural man, the man without the Holy Spirit, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. 
nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. That's where we were before we had the Holy Spirit in us, before we were saved. So before we could be motivated to receive God's gift of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus, here's the key. We needed to be convinced that we couldn't save ourselves. So that God revealed his standard of holiness through the law. And it was infinitely higher than we could attain. Because there was this standard of holiness that there's no way that mankind could measure up to, it showed us our need for a Savior. It showed people that we couldn't save ourselves, we couldn't do it on our own, and we needed a Savior. And that is still the purpose of the law today. The do's, the don'ts, the commandments, the do this, don't do that. That's still the purpose today. To give revelation to the unsaved. The people who don't know Jesus yet. To show them that they need a Savior. When I look back at my own life, that's when I turned to Jesus. When I realized I couldn't save myself. And in my case, it was because of stage 4 cancer. I did my best to follow that list of rules. I did. I knew the commandments. I knew the rules. I followed them. I checked it off my list. But then I came to a place where I knew I couldn't save myself. I turned to Jesus. It led me to Jesus. I can't tell you how many times in my life God was wooing me I could go back and tell you specific examples of when I knew that I wanted more, but I didn't, didn't really understand it, didn't know how to go there. I didn't know what to do. And there were many times when I said no to that wooing because it was against my religion. Until I had a death sentence and I couldn't save myself. That's when I gave in and let God be God. That's when I let Jesus have lordship over my life. And that's when everything changed. See, I didn't realize what I was missing. That's what's out there in the world, in the the world that is just rampant with sin. They don't realize what they're missing. They're trying to feed themselves and, and fill themselves with sin, drunkenness, drugs, sex. Pornography, uh, partying, whatever. They're trying to fill their lives. Don't realize what they're missing. See, all those are counterfeit addictions. They don't realize they need a Savior. But the law can point them to that knowledge that they need a Savior. So that's the purpose of the law today. So... We're starting to get to the point where we're going to look at the the nature of God in this whole picture, the true nature of God. So we've got the Old Testament that is sometimes confusing to us when when we look at the nature of God. But let me say this. The Old Testament picture of God is an incomplete picture. The Old Testament picture of the nature of God is an incomplete picture. It's not incorrect. 
but it's incomplete. God's nature is not judgment. He does judge. He is holy. He is just. But God is love. And his holiness and his justness and his faithfulness and his judgment is based on love. Not wrath, not anger, but love. Love is God's true nature. And we're going to go into that a lot over the next few weeks. Okay. Now I want to look at the, 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 the current picture, the current state of our lives, which is the better covenant of grace. Because, thank God, we were born A.D., after the death of Jesus. We have the, the benefits of the grace that Jesus paid for, if we choose to accept it. So this new covenant of grace, this new covenant, this better covenant, in the book of Hebrews, I think it's chapter 6, or somewhere in there, it talks about the better covenant. And it uses the word better, over and over and over. Better covenant. It improves upon the other covenant, that they were the law, covenant of the law. So this new covenant of grace brought even greater glory to God than the old covenant of the law, the covenant of sin and death. And I'm going to go right now to Exodus chapter 34, and I want to show you how the old covenant of law had glory. Okay, so let's look there first, and then we'll look at the new covenant, how there's even more glory. Now it was so, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. He went up on Mount Sinai, talked with God, fellowship with God, and he brought down... The tablets that had the law, the Ten Commandments on them. And when he did, his face was aglow with the glory of God. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone. And they were afraid to come near him. And then Moses called to them. And Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him. And Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near. And he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And he would come out and speak to the children of Israel, whatever he had been commanded. See, God kept telling him more and more to do with the, 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 um, the, the place of worship the ark and, the, and all of the tools of worship and the sacrificial system. God kept telling him more and more, and he would go talk to God. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. He would go speak with God, and he was, he was aglow with the glory of God. And he put that veil on because the glory would fade over time. And then when he'd go back in, he would, the glory again would come upon him. So there was glory. This was the law. Now, what I want to show you now in 2 Corinthians, and this is written in your handout, is the greater glory 
of the new covenant, the better covenant. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death, that's what that was called. The law was called the ministry of death. Engraved in letters on stones, that's what Moses carried down from Mount Sinai. The covenant of the law, which led to death because of sin, if that law came with such glory and splendor that the Israelites were not able to look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, a brilliance that was fading, how will the ministry of the Spirit, the new covenant, which allows us to be Spirit-filled believers, how will that fail to be even more glorious and splendid? How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more glorious and splendid? For if the ministry that brings condemnation, the old covenant, the law, has glory, how much more does glory overflow in the ministry that brings righteousness? The new covenant, which declares believers free of guilt, and sets them apart for God's special purpose. That's us. Indeed, what had glory, the law, in this case, no longer has glory. Because of the glory that surpasses it in the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus. For if that law, which fades away, came with glory, how much more must that gospel, which remains and is permanent, abide in glory and splendor. The new covenant of grace. So on my notes, this is what I have. I have grace, forgiveness. Forgiveness means remission, guilt canceled out, acquitted. Righteousness, life. That's on one side of my paper. Let me say that again. Grace, forgiveness, righteousness, and life, and put acceptance in there too, acceptance and life. That's the greater glory, the better covenant. Now, the old covenant, the law, is the law, sin, condemnation, exclusion, and death. I'd say that grace is the greater glory. And that's what we live under, guys. That is the true nature of what God has given to us. Romans 8, verse 2. I'm going to look at a couple more scriptures that give us another nugget of the same truth with fewer words. Sometimes it's hard when there's a lot of words. Listen to what this says. For the law of the spirit of life... That's that list I just gave you. Grace, forgiveness, righteousness, acceptance, life. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the other side, the law of sin and death, law, sin, condemnation, exclusion, death. We've been freed from that one. We're now in this one. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Now Romans 4. Mm, Lord. I thank you 
We looked at Abraham a minute ago, and we looked at how righteousness was imputed to him because of his faith. In that same chapter, chapter 4, I'm going to start with verse 22, the one that I read before. What translation am I using? Amplified. So this is why Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, right standing with God. But those words, it was credited to him, were written not for his sake alone, but they were written for our sakes too. Righteousness, standing acceptable to God, will be granted and credited to us or imputed to us also who believe in, trust in, adhere to, and rely on God who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was betrayed and put to death because of our misdeeds and was raised to secure our justification, our acquittal, making our account balance and absolving us from all guilt before God. So God put it in our bank account. He put righteousness in our bank account. He made the accounts balance. What we owed, he paid. He made our bank account balance. We didn't have to do it. We didn't have to pay the price. We didn't have to go to work, pay the price, put it in the bank. He did it for us. So pre-law, sin was not imputed to man. It wasn't held against him. Then the law came, and it was held against him. And all that other stuff, sin, death, condemnation was all in there. And then the better covenant of grace came. Sin is no longer imputed to us. Because Jesus paid the price for it. Instead, righteousness is imputed to us. It's put in our account. Jesus made our accounts balance because of Jesus. Our part is to just believe. Okay, now comes the really main focus of this session, and that is the misperceptions. These misperceptions were all rampant in me, and this was just revealed to me in a greater, deeper way, and I want to reveal it to you. Here's the first misconception, misperception. The problem that many Christians are facing, this isn't unbelievers, this is Christians, The problem many Christians are facing is that they're seeing God through the Old Testament law instead of through the new covenant of grace through Jesus. The law, if we choose to abide with the law, because we've been, the law is no longer a covenant. We have a better covenant. If we choose to to allow the law to, to be our ruler, then it points to our sin, and it brings condemnation to us. It brings all the junk that the law brings, condemnation, exclusion, death. Condemnation drives you away from intimacy with God, and it makes you feel helpless to do anything but sin. But as saved children of God, as kids of God, we don't need to accept that. The lie is to accept that and to do it. We're going to go there in a sec. But that's not what we should be doing. 
The Holy Spirit has a better plan, way better plan. It's called conviction. Conviction is a good thing. Conviction is this precious gift of the Holy Spirit that's in me, that's in you, that shows us immediately what is God's best for us. It shows us if we've missed something, it's okay. If we've missed something, if we're not in God's will, this is what conviction does. It draws you to God. It draws you closer to him. It doesn't push you away. It doesn't make you run away. It draws you to God and leads you into his ways. I'm not going to teach today on godly living. But I have in the past. You can go to other teachings and, and look at the, the sensitivity that develops as you, as you heed God's voice. And you just run to him and run to him and run to him. A sensitivity develops in that that. That God consciousness just grows in you. And your first desire is to say, God, help me. Not to run away from him. God, I'm coming. (laughs) I need you really bad right now. And he's there. And he's there every time. So Satan is the author of condemnation. And one of the biggest things he uses to minister condemnation is through religion that points us to the old covenant law instead of a new covenant of grace. And I'm going to use my own example here. Kent and I talked about this at dinner, and this is one of those times that I, I, it's it's a little out of my comfort zone to share this part of, of me because it's so central to who I was and my family, and I love my family dearly. But I feel, I feel like I need to share this, and you probably will relate to a lot of it. I lived in my first 43 years, before I, before I came to know Jesus personally, I lived a very religious life. And my religious life had a lot of rules in it that did exactly what I'm talking about. It pointed me to the law. It pointed me to the old covenant law instead of the new covenant of grace. And I didn't know any better. So there were a lot of things in my life that I did to follow the letter of the law. Going to church on Sunday was the law. If I didn't go to to church, it was considered a mortal sin. There was uh, uh, things that that we were told to do or not do. Um, One of them was called holy days of obligation. They were required by the law, by the religion. And if we didn't follow the religious law, it was a grave sin. Another one was what you ate. Um, during the season of Lent, we were not to eat meat on Friday. If you did eat meat on Friday, it was breaking the law. It was sin. Interesting thing was, when I was younger, you couldn't eat meat on Friday ever. But then the law changed. The rules changed. So then you could, and it wasn't sin anymore, except during Lent. So you get the picture. There were a lot of rules and regulations. Kent knows. He can attest to this. We always went to church. Always, always, always. I didn't worship at church. I, I didn't, um, I didn't give of my heart to God. I just went and checked it off my list. That wasn't God's fault. That was me. That was Cindy. And I don't even blame the church for that. I blame 
me because I just didn't go to God, okay? But that was what religion told me to do. That's what I did. And what I'm saying right now is that's not the true nature of God. That's partial. Remember what I said? The Old Testament God was, was incomplete picture of the nature of God. The complete picture of God is grace. And I wasn't living in, the, in that world. What I want to show you right now is a scripture. This is Colossians chapter 2. And this scripture really shows, according to God's word, that religion isn't God's best for us. That rules aren't God's best for us. That tradition of man is not what God wants for us. So listen to this. This is Colossians chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, that's Jesus, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. So this is talking about uh, he's saying, don't let anybody cheat you of the goodness of what God has for you. Don't let him cheat you with, with these other things that are peripheral, that aren't the important thing. And not holding fast to the head, not putting Jesus at the top. And then listen to verse 20. Therefore, if you died with Christ, if you're saved, if you're born again, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world as the living in the world... Why? I'm sorry, i got to back up because I read it wrong. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So religious stuff and tradition of men, rules, regulations. And this, because it was written many, many years ago, this is really um, talking about the, the, the um, systems of religion that were in place then as far as um, being purified and cleaned and, you know, all of the ritual things that they had to do. Because there are a whole bunch of rules, even more than we have now, a lot more than what we have now. But it also applies to us today. So that's my first question. Are you seeing yourself under the letter of the law or under the grace of God? Are you putting yourself back under the law? And then here's my second question. Are you offering works of self-sacrifice and self-punishment to atone for your sin and guilt? So, we, our sin has been remitted. That means it's no longer a part of us. But we can still miss it. Remember, there's the vertical effect of sin and the horizontal effect of sin. And the horizontal effect is opening the door to junk. You know, there's consequences of sin. There is. We can see that easily enough. You know, drunk driving isn't good. You can have consequences. And that's a big example. But there, the same thing can happen with, happen with other examples. So the question is, are you self-imposing, like, 
okay, I missed it. I'm guilty. I'm not worthy. And separating yourself from God. God doesn't separate himself from you. But are you separating yourself from God? Are you saying, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy? I have to do penance. There's another thing from my past, and many of you have been there too. Um, uh, part of the religion that was I, I was in included confession. And confession included penance. To absolve yourself, and that was the word, to absolve yourself, to atone for the, the sin. Who, who paid the price for our sin? Is it all done? Is it all paid? Is our, our bank account balanced? Our spiritual bank account? Yeah. And when we put ourselves in that position of self-atonement or self-sacrifice, Like Tom said earlier, it is like blaspheming our Lord Jesus who paid the price in full. His desire is for us to go right back into his arms when we miss it. To re-establish that fellowship. He hasn't broken it. But for us to go directly to his grace, his throne of grace, and receive his benefits that he paid such a great price for. And when we do, go right back to that throne of grace. We receive it. We receive that grace and peace is multiplied, multiplied to us through knowing him, through going to him, through not running away from him, but running to him. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace, by free grace, free to us. Cost Jesus a lot. It is for it is by free grace, God's unmerited favor, that you are saved, delivered from judgment, and made partakers of Christ's salvation through your faith. I'm going to stop right there. It is by grace that we are saved through our faith. God's grace saves us when we believe in him. That word save is so-so. That word so-so means forgiven. Forgiven, acquitted, completely paid, all sin paid for, all judgment on Jesus. We are clean. We are pure. We are righteous. But saved also means healed. Saved also means complete. It means whole. We are saved, healed, made whole by Jesus' grace when we just believe Him. And then the next part of the scripture says, And this salvation is not of yourselves. It's not your own doing. It came not through your own striving, but it's the gift of God. Not because of works, not the fulfillment of the law's demands, lest any man should boast. It's not the result of what anyone can possibly do, so no one can pride himself in it or take glory to himself. So that leads me to my third question. Do you have a performance mentality? 
feeling like you must do everything just right in order to be blessed by God. You know, there's the two sides of the picture. The first side is, oh, I'm so unworthy, God. I need to pay for my own sin, my own whatever. I need, you know, I I can't come to you because of my sin. That's one lie, lie, lie. And the other one is, okay, I have to work. I have to do this and this and this and this and this. And then, and then maybe I'll receive healing. Then maybe I'll receive the answer to this prayer that I've been, you know, crying out to God for. That's a lie, too. The scripture in Ephesians that we just read says that we're saved through believing. We're not saved through working. It goes into great depth to say, no, it's not based on your works. It's based on Jesus' work that's already done. I have something highlighted. It's not written on your paper because I thought it was kind of harsh to put on your paper, but I'm going to say it. The performance mentality is the reason many people aren't healed. That performance mentality, thinking you have to do everything just right, that you have a whole list of to-dos, and if you don't get all those to-dos done, then you're not going to receive. If that's your mentality, it is It's messing with your faith. Faith is believing Jesus. It's not believing in you. It's believing in Jesus. And that scripture says you're saved by Jesus' grace and our faith. We can believe that for salvation, but we don't believe it for healing. But it's the same scripture. It's the same word. So it's always the same word. And our part is to believe in Jesus' work for healing, the same way that we simply believe in Jesus' work for salvation. Salvation is easy. Do you guys agree? I have led so many people to salvation. It's fun. I love it. I do it all the time. It's just as easy to believe Jesus for healing as it is for salvation. Right, Ellen? Yeah. Our healing is not based on our obedience, how, how good we are and how good we follow the rules. It's not based on our merit. Merit is like, okay, I give to the poor, I give to Great Lakes Church, <laughs> I give, you know, my tithes, I, I, you know, whatever. I go visit the sick people. That's not, that's not what our healing is based on. It's not based on our merit, our works, or our obedience. It's based on Jesus' work. We need to come to God for every need the same way we came to him for salvation. So I'm going to close with this. I've already said it, but I'm going to say it again. Faith. God's part is done. It's grace. Faith is our part. And it is a direct result of knowing God better. Knowing the true nature of God. Our perception of God will make all the difference in the life, in the abundance of life that we live. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about the nature of God, his truth for us, his good plan for us.